All right, praise the Lord. Okay, uh, open up your Bibles to Acts 2, 1 through 11. Or actually, I'm sorry, 1 through 14. Acts 2, 1 through 14. And I'm so excited to be continuing in the series of the book of Acts in line with the theme of our year, which is witness. But if you're joining us in person, you'll see it on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, welcome. You'll see it on your screen at home. Acts 2, 1 through 14. Okay, this is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you so much, Father, that you have, Lord God, revealed yourself to us through the pages of scripture. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've done more than that. But Lord Jesus, with your very own life poured out upon the cross, Lord, you made a way for us to now receive from you your very own presence, your Holy Spirit. So, Lord God, I pray that as we come before you, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would be with us during this time, that you would speak through my mouth, Lord. Lord, I know I have nothing to say. I know that only what is in your word and what you have put upon my heart as I've looked into it, Father, only that will be beneficial. So, Lord God, please speak through that, and we give you all the glory. Father, open our hearts wide to receive. Thank you for everybody here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well today uh, we are going to be continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and this is the year of witness, amen, is the year of witness. And so this is the focus for our year, uh, for the church this year, I should say, and it is to be witnesses of Jesus Christ to the people God has placed all around us called our oikos. And that is not the only thing we're going to talk about this year, but that is what the elders and I want our church to rally around this entire year. But we want to be focused on being witnesses to the people God has placed in our lives. And based on that, some of you might already be excited for that. If you are, God bless your heart. And for the rest of us, we might start feeling a heavy weight begin to press down upon our hearts and our minds. Why? Because some of us might be wondering, uh, I don't know about this. I've never really done this before. Or I've done this before and it didn't go well. And the people I know really don't like what I have to say about Jesus. So there might be all kinds of questions. You might start feeling a little bit of anxiety. And if that is you, then you are in good company. Because that was very likely how the original 120 disciples felt. 
When Jesus, after he died and then rose again, appeared to them and then gave them this great commission in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so just imagine being one of these 120 disciples who after brutally seeing Jesus killed publicly and then mysteriously there were rumors of him coming back to life and then you see him but you're still not sure and now here he is standing before you and he gives you this commission. I could imagine the burden they felt by this call to be Jesus' witnesses. It was no doubt far greater than any burden you might feel knowing the theme for this year. And the reason is because only 40 days before Jesus gave this commission, the entire city was in an uproar and they took part in killing Jesus. Think about that. That was just a short time before. All of it happened only a little over a month before this scene. You know what that would be like? That would be like you hearing something dramatic in the middle of December and now having to do something about it today. I mean, that, that's just the time span. Not a whole lot of time has passed. And in the very city Jesus was publicly executed, the very city where his followers were now hiding, they were told to do what? We're supposed to go where? Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So bottom line is, that would have been terrifying to the disciples. And yet Jesus, the careful shepherd, knew that. And he prepared them for the great task. And so for the entire first chapter of Acts, that is what we've been seeing. But Jesus was preparing his disciples to be witnesses, starting in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. All the way right here to Riverside. And so since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the first chapter in the book of Acts. I mean, the year just began. It's only been two weeks. And so this is the book that we're studying this entire year. And we saw how Jesus prepared his disciples in the first chapter. And he did it in various ways before he ascended back up to heaven. And so even after ascending up to heaven, Jesus continued to prepare his disciples to be his witnesses. So he did it through prayer, teaching them on prayer. They gathered in prayer. He did it through the guidance of his word. And remember, he's no longer here. He's doing it all through his spirit, but he's guiding them through his word and finally through his providence in appointing a new apostle to take Judas's place. So this new movement needed strong and full leadership. And so by God's providence, he provided that. And last week, Sam did a great job describing all of that to us, explaining it. So all of this was preparation, and it was really aimed at something. I see it kind of like a large slingshot, but it's kind of like God in the opening pages of Acts. He's kind of pulling this enormous slingshot back, and then back, and then back. And it was being aimed at something. But it was being aimed at the birth of the church and the launch of the worldwide Christian movement for the gospel to shoot out from Jerusalem and to go all around the world. See, nobody hears Jesus' commission to be his witnesses and then just goes, okay, and then stumbles out the door and starts doing it. Nobody does that. And in fact, even if I say this every Sunday this year, you're still not going to do it. I won't do it either. Why? Because we need to be prepared. Before we go out to be his witnesses, we first must be prepared. So they need a preparation. Do you have preparation? Are you prepared? 
Well, today we're going to see the final piece of Jesus' preparation, or we're going to begin to see that. And this is the preparation that turned his disciples into powerful witnesses. It was really the climax of Jesus' preparation. This is what everything was spirit. So becoming Jesus' witnesses was directly connected to receiving the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that again. But if you're going to be a witness of Jesus, and so am I this year, if anyone is going to be a witness to the living Christ and what he did, then you must receive the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Those two things are directly connected. You cannot separate those two. So Jesus, in fact, made that connection. Again, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then what? Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so you see that direct connection. Luke was very careful to emphasize it. Whenever we think about being a witness for Christ at work or at school or to your family the next time you gather together, we should immediately think about, oh yeah, the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. When's the last time you thought about that? When you knew you needed to share your faith in some get-together coming up. But immediately, the moment you think about evangelism and being a witness, you should think about the filling of the Spirit because Jesus always connected those two. It is the strongest emphasis playing out in Acts chapter 1 and then Acts chapter 2. You cannot be a witness of Jesus Christ if you are not baptized and or filled by the Holy Spirit. So the next time you find yourself in a situation where you need to share your faith, you should immediately be praying to yourself, Lord, fill me by the Spirit. Fill me by the Spirit. And if you haven't been baptized yet, you should pray, baptize me in the Spirit. And we'll explain the difference in a little bit. But fill me or baptize me in the Holy Spirit. Because if not, I cannot be your witness. I will not be your witness. So this was the final most important piece in Jesus' preparation that turned a scared bunch of disciples into powerful witnesses for Christ. It was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what gave birth to the church and launched the entire worldwide Christian movement. And if that was true for them, then why would it be different for us? It's not different. So we also must have the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So today what I want to look at is I want to start looking at this. It's actually going to play out throughout uh, a lot of chapter 2. So we're going to look at it in the weeks ahead as well. But I want to start looking at the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost. And from our passage, what you see is you see is promise, is evidence, and then finally is impact. And depending on time, we might only get through the first two and maybe just dip our toe into the third one. And then we'll really see the impact next week. But the promise of the Spirit's baptism, the evidence, and finally the impact. So first is promise. Look at verses 4 and 5. Acts 1. It says, while staying with them, he ordered them. So while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when Luke wrote these words of Jesus, he knew that this promise, it came in a much bigger context. So he knew that this promise was about more than just equipping some disciples before they went out and shared their faith. Yes, it was definitely that, but it was much more than that. But Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, 
And remember, I mentioned this in the intro to Acts, but his gospel and Acts, they really go together. It's really a two-volume set. He wrote them in order for them to be read together. But Luke, he made it clear in his gospel that the ultimate goal of Jesus' mission was to remove the barrier between sinful man and a holy God in order to do what? So that we would just get a ticket to heaven? That's part of it. But why did Jesus come to remove the barrier between a sinful humanity and a holy God? In order to usher in the very presence of God upon the earth. In order to usher in the age of the spirit. It's so clear when you read through Luke's gospel. Jesus' ultimate goal for his redemptive work was to bring forgiveness, yes. To bring salvation, yes. To remove that barrier, yes. But there was a purpose beyond that. What was it? In order to restore the very presence of God upon the earth. And so this is why when Jesus was here doing his ministry, he was repeatedly identified with the Spirit in Luke's gospel. More than any other gospel writer, Luke emphasized this. But Jesus was here as the Spirit man in order to one day pour out the Spirit. So you see this in various passages in Luke chapter 3 and 4. You're going to see it on the screen, but let me just read them to you. John, the baptizer, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose handles I am not worthy to untie. And then listen, what will this new person do? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John said, I'm not the one. There's somebody greater than me. And when he comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then later in verse 21, same chapter, and now when all the people were being baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And then having been baptized, he was praying, and then the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with you, I am well pleased. So immediately, the first thing you see with Jesus, the moment he comes on the scene is what? He's baptized, Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's filled without measure by the Spirit. And then, a few verses later, chapter four, verse one. And then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. You should underline these things. Now, full of the Holy Spirit, we just saw that happen. He's filled with the Spirit. And now, by being led by the Spirit, he goes into the wilderness and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This, these are Luke's words. Do you see the emphasis there? From the very moment you see Jesus, boom, filled by the Spirit without measure, baptized in the Spirit. And now he's filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. He was tempted. He comes back in the power of the Spirit. And a report went about him, about him went throughout all the surrounding country. And then he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Verse 16. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And so now here's Jesus' public declaration for the first time who he is, why he's come here. He's doing it in his hometown. Listen to what he says. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Was that true? That was absolutely true. Luke told us it happened at the baptism. We see him now empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, returning in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news 
So right from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, you see that connection. Jesus was the man of the spirit anointed to do what? Be a witness. Jesus walked in this path before any of us in every single possible way. And so Jesus is identified repeatedly with the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. So much so you could say Jesus was the man of the Spirit. I like what Ferguson said, Sinclair Ferguson, but he said the Spirit became so closely associated with Jesus throughout his entire life that the Spirit literally became imprinted by Christ, like soft wax being imprinted by a ring. So Jesus was the ring and the spirit was like the wax. And Jesus imprinted himself onto the spirit whom he was filled without measure with. And so this is why later on in the New Testament, it makes sense that you would now see the Holy Spirit referred to as who? The spirit of Christ. Do you see how the Bible, it all connects together? So until Jesus came along, the Holy Spirit was just vague and abstract. We didn't know who he was, really. But once Jesus came, he became the man of the Spirit, anointed, baptized without measure with the Holy Spirit. And because he was so intimately connected, identified with the Spirit, now the Spirit became the Spirit of Christ. He was the Spirit of Christ. And so why is this important? It's because Luke is taking pains to emphasize that Jesus' mission was more than to bring forgiveness of sin, as glorious as that is. It was more than to just give us a ticket to heaven. And I love my salvation. It is the most precious thing to me, even more precious than my family. But even as great as those things are, Jesus' mission was to do nothing less than remove the barrier between a sinful humanity and a holy God in order to usher in the very presence of God upon the earth so that he would dwell with a people that he is gathering from every tribe and nation and he would dwell with them forever and ever. That was the ultimate goal of his mission. That is why Jesus came. So if you don't get that and you just see Jesus' work as, oh yeah, I just get to go to heaven, then you have missed it. But this is why he came. And this is why Jesus made this promise in Acts 1.5. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we need to understand all that if we're going to understand why Jesus made this promise. It wasn't so that, oh yeah, you need some help to be a witness. Here's some help. It was so much greater than that. And we don't have time to go into all the scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, of how God repeated this promise one day. There's a separation between us, but one day I will restore my presence upon the earth and I will dwell with you, my people, forever. But Jesus' promise was just another expression of that. And so this is why Jesus is the one who poured out his spirit upon the disciples in Jerusalem after he ascended back up to heaven because this was his mission. This is why he came. This was the climax of why he came. In fact, I'm sure even on the cross, I mean, I don't want to assume anything, but I'm sure this is what Jesus was imagining and thinking of, longing for that day in the near future when after this work is done, I will pour out my spirit. I will for once and for all be upon the earth and dwell with my people forever and ever. So this was all a part of Jesus' mission to ultimately restore God's presence upon the earth. So got that? So we're going to look at that more next week as we get into Peter's sermon. Peter begins to unpack that. He quotes from the book of Joel. He really lays that out. But here's another thing Luke was emphasizing through Jesus' promise. 
to baptize in the Spirit. Here's another point Luke was making. More than any other gospel writer, Luke emphasized the absolute necessity of the Spirit in a person's life. In order to be a believer, just a normal believer, to be an effective witness, but you absolutely need the presence of the Spirit in your life. And again, if you were to go back into Luke's gospel, the first part in the two-volume set, Jesus himself modeled it more than anybody, but he modeled throughout Luke's gospel this absolute necessity to be in this intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit in order to do what? Just be a Christian, just be a normal believer, which Jesus modeled. But again, listen to these statements about Jesus and the Spirit in Luke. But when he was baptized, Luke 3, 21, Jesus, after having been baptized, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Were you baptized? Did you ever receive Christ when you first came to faith? Well, if you did, this is exactly what happened to you. The Holy Spirit came upon you and you were filled with the Spirit. Later it says in Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. Later in Luke 4, 17 through 19, Jesus defined his entire ministry as a ministry of the Spirit. Again, in the synagogue, open the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news. And many other things. And so why was Jesus able to do all of these things? Well, it's because in John 3, 34, he said, God the Father gave Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure. He was a man of the spirit. So Jesus modeled a normal Christian life, right? Now, of course, there are some things that Jesus did we are never called to do. He is the redeemer. He is the savior. We're not called to be our own saviors. But in many other ways, as truly God, but also truly man, he modeled what the normal Christian life looks like. And so how did Jesus do that? It's because he had the spirit without measure. And so Jesus affirmed in John 6, 6, 6 I'm sorry, John 6, 63, Tongue-tied. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Did you hear that? The spirit gives life, but you all on your own, just doing things on your own, even trying to be a Christian on your own, Jesus said it counts for nothing. So because of these verses and others, Jesus had been rightly called the spirit man. His entire life was marked by the spirit. He was led by the spirit. He was empowered by the spirit. And if Jesus was that dependent on the Holy Spirit, then who are we to think that we can just live the Christian life without even thinking about the Spirit, without even communicating with the Spirit, without even being mindful of who the Spirit is? Who are we to say, oh, I can do this on my own? If that's your kind of thinking, this is what Paul had to say about that. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? In other words, having been saved through the filling and baptism of the Spirit, that's how you became a Christian, are you now being so foolish thinking you're being perfected by the flesh? Are you so foolish thinking you're gonna be perfected by the flesh? So you need the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I need the Holy Spirit. So I believe this is what Luke is also emphasizing. When Jesus gave that promise that you will be baptized, he was connecting it to this much broader context of God's presence being restored, but he was also making it so clear. And those disciples knew Jesus during his earthly ministry. Do you remember the way I lived? Do you remember the way I walked, the way I ministered? I was the man of the spirit, 
Now you are gonna be the people of the Spirit. So we need the Holy Spirit, amen? You and I, we need the Spirit. Is this the default mindset every day? And I'll be honest, it's not for me. Even though I preach these messages for many, many years, there are times when I forget. There are seasons when I wake up every day and I go, oh, Holy Spirit, help me. Fill me today. I can't be a Christian today without you. But there are also seasons where I forget, so I understand. But this needs to be the default mindset we have every day. Why? Because the normal Christian life is beyond us. You have no chance of living the normal Christian life all on your own, in your own strength. We must be absolutely clear on that. On your own, you have zero chance to live the normal Christian life as described in scripture. Zero chance. All you have is a mockery of it, a parody of it. It just looks like a Christian life on the outside, but not the true Christian life. Listen to what the Bible says about even the normal, quote-unquote, Christian activities that we all seem to just do all the time, right? But listen to what the Bible says. These won't be up there. But worship. What do you do as a Christian? We worship, right? We sing, we praise God, we worship. John 4.23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father. How? In spirit. You must have the Holy Spirit, in spirit and in truth. For these are the Father. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Okay, what about studying the Bible? This is something that we like to do. We do it all the time. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, like the Word, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Word of God, this book, is spiritually understood. So every time you open this up, you better pray, Holy Spirit, help me to understand this. Otherwise, you will not understand it. It is spiritually discerned. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You're not gonna learn it from a person. You're not gonna learn it from just studying it on your own. The Holy Spirit must teach it to you. As you come to church, as you hear others, the spirit must teach it to you. What about prayer? Oh yeah, I pray all the time. Yeah, I like praying. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in all our weakness. We do not know even what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You can't even pray without the Spirit. What about fighting sin? Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We are going to be helpless, corrupt sinners without the power of the Spirit. You, moment by moment, actively, consciously relying on the power of the Spirit. We are hopeless, hopelessly sinner. We're going to be hopelessly sinners. Loving others, Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. We can't even love one another without the Spirit. What about serving the church? 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but they are all given to believers by the same spirit. There are different ways to serve, but they all come from the same Lord. And then one more. What about sharing your faith? This is the year of witness. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So do you see that, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I don't want to bore you. I could read more verses, but you get the point. 
Just name one Christian activity that you just quote unquote do on your own. That's normal, that you just like to do. And if you don't have the spirit, brother and sister, you cannot do it. It's just a parody. It just looks like you're doing it, but you're not doing it in the true essence of what God intends. We must have the Holy Spirit. So do you see how every activity in your Christian life, anything that you can think of is dependent on the Holy Spirit. And those are only the normal activities, quote unquote. What about the supernatural activities of operating in the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, of seeing the powerful works of God? You absolutely need the Spirit. And so people do not really believe this. Even as they come to church and hear this, they don't really believe it. You know what relying on yourself is kind of like? It's kind of like the same as not praying. But the reason why a lot of people don't pray is because they have unbelief and they have self-reliance. They don't really believe that God can help them, right? They don't really believe that God's going to answer this prayer or keep his promises, so they don't pray. They go, oh, what's the point? So it's a form of unbelief, and it's also a form of self-reliance. Oh, I'll take care of it. I could do it on my own. Well, what is not being mindful of the Spirit day by day? It's the same thing. It's like people who don't pray. Oh, I don't know. The Spirit? I don't know. There's unbelief, right? Is this all true? Do we really need him that badly? And it's also self-reliance. I'll take care of it. I could be a Christian on my own. I've been winging it for about 10 years now. It's going okay in my eyes, right? So it's the same thing. When you are not being mindful of the Spirit, asking him to fill you each and every day to live the normal Christian life, it is the same thing as being prayerless. Listen to John Stott, but he says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. When he says Christian discipleship, he just means the normal Christian spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from the spirit's fruit and no effective witness without the spirit's power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. Those are very true words, so true. So if we can just understand that in the core of our being, imagine how different things are gonna be. Imagine how different your Christian life would be. Right now, if you feel dry, if something is just kind of like, I don't know, right? My Christian life isn't really working. Church is kind of dry. I don't know. I'm not even really into what you're saying right now. Then I want to strongly encourage you, your issue is you need to be filled by the Spirit. You're trying to live the Christian life all on your own. You know what that's like? It's kind of like having a laptop or a phone with no battery inside. It looks like a phone. It looks like a laptop but it's just a prop, right? It's just dead. It's just something to put up in a model home for people to look at, but it doesn't really work. And that's how so many Christians are. They're just kind of like props to just fill churches. And it kind of looks like a church, right? Kind of like a model home. You go into a model home, you just see a lot of like fake computers and fake TVs on the wall, right? They're just props. And that's what Christians are who don't have the Holy Spirit. And yet, if you come to realize this, which I really believe this is what Luke is addressing, okay, as he talks about the promise to be baptized by the Spirit, and then he talks about Pentecost and what happened, he's really trying to spark this hunger. Remember, he, so that you would know these things. So he's trying to encourage us. Okay, you need to be filled by the Spirit. So if you recognize your need and you're looking for help, then here's the beautiful message of Acts. God has promised to help, amen? God has promised it. And he's promised to give you nothing less than his very own presence poured into you 
And so once you receive the presence of God poured into you, then everything changes, and that's what we see. And we're going to really see that next week with Peter. But the scared bunch of disciples who are running for their lives or are hiding from all the authorities, now they boldly stand up in the very city that their Lord was crucified, and they declare he's risen. He has risen. Everything began to change. So God has promised to provide the exact help we need through the very presence of his very own spirit. Again, this is why Jesus came, to baptize us in the spirit. So that was the promise. He promised it. This was the ultimate goal of his entire mission. So then the second thing is the evidence. So then what's the evidence of being baptized by the spirit? Look at verses one through four. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here, this enormous event, this was an age-defining event. Before Pentecost, it was one kind of age, and after Pentecost, a new age, a new era started, the age of the Spirit. But God chose to pour out his Spirit on Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish festival. It was the celebration of the beginning of the early weeks of harvest. It probably fell sometime in the middle of the month of May, maybe early June. And here's the important thing. It was roughly 50 days after Passover. And what happened during Passover? Jesus died. He was the Passover lamb. He was crucified. So remember, after Jesus died, he rose back to life three days later. And then what did Luke say? For 40 days, he met with his disciples, teaching them about all these things, giving them all these promises, telling them to wait for the Spirit's baptism. So he did that for 40 days. And then what did he say? Wait 10 days. In a short time from now, in 10 days, you will receive the Spirit. So what is that? That's 50 days, right? So from Passover, when Jesus died, 50 days later, the Spirit came down. And when was that? That was Pentecost. So Pentecost was the Jewish celebration that is roughly 50 days after Passover. So during this great Jewish holiday, this Pentecost festival, God poured out his Spirit. And the moment the Spirit came down upon the 120 disciples, these are the signs. These are the evidences. There was rushing wind, it says. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And then, number two, there were tongues of fire. So what appeared to them, maybe perhaps as a vision. Now, these are spiritual realities, but I believe it really had a sensory impact. In other words, it wasn't just purely like in their minds. It had a real sensory impact, but these are spiritual realities. It was like wind, but not really wind. It was like fire, but not actually fire. Does that make sense? So these are spiritual realities described with these words, but it did have a sensory impact. So like, like things were happening. So there was a rushing sound of wind, so they heard it. Then they saw tongues of fire, looked like tongues of fire on each and every one of the disciples. And then number three, they started talking. Suddenly there was an eruption of words. And these words were declarations of the mighty works of God. Another way to say it is they started declaring the gospel. But what was unusual, it came out in other languages. So if you're sitting there and you only speak English, suddenly you're speaking Mandarin, right? Suddenly you're speaking Portuguese. You're speaking Spanish. 
Of course, back then, there were different languages. But suddenly, there was an eruption of all these different languages. It was like sitting in an airport. Whoa. All these different languages started coming out, and they were all declaring the same thing, the gospel. So, so what is this? I mean, is this what we expect when we get baptized by the Spirit? Well, in many ways, there are similarities to these evidences. We should see the same evidences. But in other ways, this was a one-time event. So Pentecost was an age-defining event, never to be repeated again. It was a singular event. And yet, I like this analogy, but it's kind of like when a city is being built, you have all these pipes, right? And they're connected to the main water source. It could be a water tower, maybe a big water plant. And then there's one moment when that water gets turned on, right? Just one moment. But then after the water gets turned on, now it flows through all the pipes, and there are now repeated instances where a new house gets that water. Another house gets that water. So there's only one instance when the city gets the water for the first time, but after that, now there's repeated instances where different individuals and homes get water, right? So that's the way Pentecost was. It was an unrepeated, single, age-defining event. But after that, in the book of Acts, you see repeated little Pentecosts. Little Pentecosts, where you see like small groups of people receiving that single source of water again. So you see that in the book, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius' family. You see that later in Acts 19 with the disciples of John. But you see little Pentecost. So yes, there are repeated evidences of this happening, even though it was a singular event. So then in what way does this happen to us when we get baptized by the Spirit? Well, the wind, I believe, represents often in Scripture the Spirit himself. So the Holy Spirit is not wind. The Spirit is God himself. The Holy Spirit is God. He is not an it. He is a he. But the wind represents the Spirit. And when the Spirit's presence came upon the disciples, they received what? Power. So with the Spirit's presence came power. So I think the wind can also represent power, the Spirit's power. Does that make sense? So oftentimes in the Bible, the wind represents spirit. But every single time you see the Spirit coming, there's power. So the wind can represent power. The fire, the tongues of fire, I believe, represented purity. This looks awfully close to when Isaiah saw the Lord high and risen up in Isaiah chapter 6. And an angel took a live coal, a hot, glowing coal, and brought it right up to his mouth. There was fire. You better believe, right? The hottest jalapeno. I mean, it caught on fire. And so that purified his mouth. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. So, so that's a picture of purity. I think a better example is when John the Baptist said in Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose handles I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What did John mean? So Jesus coming, the greater one, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Well, John's water baptism was a baptism of purification, of cleansing. So I think there's a connection. So Jesus' baptism is going to be similar. It's also going to be a baptism of cleansing, of purification, but it's not a water baptism. John said, I only baptize in water. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit. 
and fire. So that fire there, I believe, represents a similar kind of cleansing, purification. So I think that's what fire probably represents. Okay, this is what a lot of the Bible scholars that I've come across believe as well. And then tongues represented the supernatural ability to speak in other known languages. Okay, this is the ability now to be a witness, to declare God's gospel. Now, this was probably different from the gift of tongues we see later in the New Testament. Why do I say that? Well, there are some fundamental differences between the tongues here and the tongues you see later. So, for example, the tongues of fire in Acts was for who? Other people to hear. They didn't say it so that they would just hear it themselves. They declared it to others, right? It was the languages of all the nations that were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. The gift of tongues later in the New Testament is for who to hear? Only for God to hear. Paul says, I go into my closet and I pray in tongues more than any of you, but I do it in secret. It's for God to hear. The tongues of fire and axe did not need an interpreter. Why? Because the people who heard it, they understood it. This is my language. How do you know my language? Right? But the gift of tongues later in the New Testament, you need an interpreter. Why? It's a heavenly kind of language. Nobody understands it. The tongues of fire and axe was to edify others with the gospel. The gift of tongues later in the New Testament is to just edify yourself. Paul says it builds you up, edifies yourself. So there are other things I could mention, but for those reasons, I think the tongues that you see at Pentecost are not the same tongues that you see later in the New Testament. I, I think they're fundamentally different. So I don't agree with that argument that says, oh yeah, the gift of tongues has passed, and the reason why is because tongues, every single time in the Bible, was just speaking in a known language. And I know people today who can do that. I've shared this before, but I know a pastor in Oaxaca who actually received Spanish supernaturally. He never learned it. He's an older Korean man in his 80s, and he speaks fluent Spanish, jokes in Spanish, preaches in Spanish, and he's like, I never took a class. God just gave it to me when I got to Oaxaca. So I know that still happens, but I don't think that's the gift of tongues in the New Testament. The gift of tongues, I believe, is something different. So these are the three signs that the disciples received or displayed when they were baptized in the Spirit. But they received some sort of supernatural power that made them bold, empower them, Number two, there was a purification. Maybe the implication there is they were purified of their fear. They were purified of their doubt. But they were purified, and we see that clearly as the book of Acts continues. Okay, that fear just fell away. They were purified. And then number three, they began to speak boldly okay, the gospel. Again, this is not the gift of tongues, I believe, later in the New Testament, the spiritual language. No, this is the bold declaration of the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, if that is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit, are those things that we can also receive? Absolutely. You can also receive every single one. And so you too can receive the power to live out the Christian life in boldness. You too can have this purifying effect where your doubt or fear or anxiety can be burned away when the Spirit comes and you too can also be a bold witness for the living Christ. You can begin to declare the gospel. And so this is spirit baptism. But what exactly is it though? What exactly is spirit baptism? If that is the evidence of spirit baptism, what actually is it though? Because unless we know what it is, how are we gonna receive it, amen? 
So we need to know what is spirit baptism. So perhaps for the remainder of this time, we don't have that much time, I'm gonna just talk about what actually happened here. What is spirit baptism? Well, John the Baptist was the first person to coin the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit. I already read it, Luke 3, 16. He, one who is greater is coming, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he was the first to coin that phrase. And the Greek word baptizo literally means to dunk, to submerge, kind of like going to a pool and jumping into the deep end, right? When you jump in and suddenly you're submerged, you've been baptized in the pool. (laughs) So that's what baptizo means. Later, Paul and Luke took this phrase and then they used it in their own way. And this is where I think confusion comes in. Because if you're not careful in reading the context, you might think, oh, it's the same thing. But it's not, because I think Luke and Paul were using the word baptized in different ways. And because of this, there are two different definitions in the Bible, I believe, for baptized with the Holy Spirit. So whenever you see baptized with the Holy Spirit, there are different definitions. You need to know what is the context saying. Okay, what definition are we talking about? And so what are the two different definitions of baptized with the Spirit? Well, Paul takes this phrase and he uses it exclusively to mean the moment of conversion. When you read Paul, it's very clear. Every time you use the word baptized in the Spirit or that phrase, he's talking about your salvation, your moment of conversion. He said in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He's clearly talking about your salvation. When you got converted, you were baptized in the spirit, according to Paul. And that might look different for different people. Some of you had a lot of emotion come upon you. Others, no emotion. Others, you immediately transformed. All the swear words you used to say fell away. Others, it was a progress, right? Some of you loved the word of God immediately, devoured it. Others of you, it took more time, right? So it looks different, but... Regardless, if you are truly saved, you are baptized in the Spirit, according to Paul. So according to Paul, baptism in the Spirit is the experience a person goes through at the moment he or she receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's simple. It's clear. But here's the confusion. Luke does not use it that way, I believe. So Luke used baptizing the Holy Spirit to mean something different. It's related, but it's different. So when Luke said baptized with the Holy Spirit, he meant the first experience of the Holy Spirit's fullness, which results in supernatural joy, power to overcome sin, power to be a bold witness, and at times even having sign gifts like tongues or prophecy. But Luke used it, I believe, in that way. And so what do I say that? Where do we get this evidence for this definition? Well, in Acts 1.5, Luke quotes Jesus promising the disciples that they're going to be baptized, right? In the Spirit. He promised that. And then in Acts 2, 1 through 4, we get Jesus making good on that promise. And this is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and then listen, they were all what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. So I don't want to split too many hairs here, but I think that's significant. Earlier, Jesus promised, just hang tight, 10 days from now you're going to get baptized in the spirit. 
when that day actually came, how did Luke describe it? They were filled with the Spirit. He says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So from the language, we can see that Luke was doing something a little different here. This isn't talking about conversion. These disciples were already believers. I believe they were already converted earlier. You can even say they were converted in John towards the end of his gospel when Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. That happened earlier. I believe he was, they were already converted then. So what's going on here? Well, Luke said they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So for Luke, baptized with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit is interchangeable. In some ways, interchangeable. But here's another reason why Luke's definition is different from Paul's. If Luke was using Paul's definition of baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.5, then we would assume Jesus meant the disciples were going to get converted, saved for the first time at Pentecost, right? If, if Luke is using the same definition that Paul does, or Paul did, then he's saying, okay, hang tight here. You're not believers yet. You're not converted yet. But at Pentecost, you're going to finally get saved and be converted. And is that what he meant? Well, that's hard to believe, especially since, like I said, in John 20, 22, Jesus already gave them the Holy Spirit earlier. During those 40 days, he said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. And Peter's confession of Christ in Matthew 16, 16, it probably couldn't have happened where Peter said, you are the Christ. That probably wouldn't have happened unless he was already in some way converted. He was already a believer at that point. So the only other explanation of what is Luke talking about? Okay, is he saying that they're going to get converted at Pentecost? Probably not. Then what is he talking about? Well, he was probably describing the disciples' first experience of being maxed, filled to the full by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Because this is very important, brothers and sisters. Otherwise, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, all that stuff, it already happened. I got converted, I'm already. But according to Luke, unless you've experienced the fullness of the Spirit for the very first time, which you might not have, you can be saved and not experience the fullness of the Spirit. Unless that has happened, Luke would say, you haven't been baptized yet. You need to get baptized by the Spirit. And in case you're wondering, I'm not the only one who is saying this. Wayne Grudem himself teaches this view. So Wayne Grudem, he's a very well-known theologian. Many seminaries use his book as a textbook. But this is his view. But this is the way Luke, I believe, is talking about baptism by the Spirit. Okay, have you been filled to the fullness of the Spirit for the very first time? And if you haven't, you need to be baptized. So for some, this first experience of the fullness of the Spirit can happen at the time of conversion. So, so for some people, it happened together. You know what? I was saved. I got baptized in that moment, according to Paul. But I was also baptized according to Luke. I received the fullness right away. Right away. And I know people, I actually know this one sister in particular in my college ministry. And she was a very baby Christian. She didn't even know what had happened to her. But the moment she received Christ, I remember she told me shortly later saying, uh, Roy, I wasn't a pastor back then. You can still call me Roy. But she was like, uh, Roy, um, man, I don't know what happened, but I received the gift of tongues when I got saved. So she immediately started praying in tongues. And she's like, it was weird. 
But I would say for that sister, she was baptized in the spirit according to Paul because she got converted, but she was also baptized by the spirit according to Luke because she experienced the fullness. Now, I'm not saying you must pray in tongues to show evidence of the fullness, no. That's just the way she showed it. Some people never get that gift. But she received the fullness, I believe. So, they can, so it can happen at the same time as conversion. So in other words, you can have Luke's definition of spirit baptism and Paul's definition of spirit baptism happening all at the same time. But for some, it can happen far apart. And so this could be the situation in Acts 19 with the disciples of John. But somehow they heard about Jesus. They were disciples of John. They were already somehow converted, right? They had a level of faith. You could say they were already believers, disciples, and yet they never heard about the Spirit. So the moment Paul laid hands and prayed for them, boom, they were filled all the way. They were baptized in the Spirit according to Luke's definition. So then what does it say? When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So were they saved at that moment? Probably not. They were already saved, but they received the fullness of the Spirit. And so for many people, including the disciples, the first experience of the Spirit's fullness, Luke's definition, right? That happened after conversion, sometimes way after conversion. And so as I'm talking about this to all of you, I wonder, have you been baptized in the Spirit? Because you could be sitting here as a genuine born-again Christian, you are converted, you are saved, and yet you have never experienced this. And here you are all along just trying to, you know, grind through the Christian life. How many of you guys feel like it's a grind? And yes, the Christian life is very hard. There are seasons of dryness and difficulty and challenge. But is it always a grind? I mean, here's the analogy. I've used it before. But when the Spirit fills you, it's kind of like you're sitting on a lake in a sailboat and then suddenly wind fills your sails. Wind fills your sails. And what you couldn't do and you're grinding forward, trying to row this huge sailboat forward, suddenly you are moved forward. You're moved forward. Have you experienced that? Did you have evidence of that? Again, going back to those evidences at Pentecost, the power, right? The purifying presence of God, the purification, and then finally that boldness in declaring the gospel. Okay, do you see that? If you don't, then you might have never been baptized in the Spirit. And I'm not gonna go into my testimony, but this is basically me for many years. You know, I got saved back in junior high. Um, it was at a summer VBS meeting. I remember I was sitting in the backyard of someone's house on a blanket and I raised my hand. Yes, I'll receive Jesus, you know? That's the way I said it. I said, I will receive Jesus. And I received Jesus. <laughs> Later I learned his name is Jesus, right? But after that, I continued to go to church, even college, my freshman year. I'm just living as a Christian, but I never experienced the fullness of the Spirit. I knew I was a believer. I knew that I had genuine faith, but I had never experienced the fullness of the Spirit until that first year in college. And then everything, everything changed. Everything changed. I'll just mention this one thing. I could not stay up <laughs> during sermons. Okay, if some of you guys are sleepy right now and you're like falling asleep, well, I need to do a better job. But, but another reason is you need to be filled, amen? You need to be filled with the Spirit. Because after I was filled to the fullness by the Spirit, my first year in college, I never could fall asleep again. I would even go to like other language services and I'm not even understanding a thing and I'm not just like wide awake. Preach to me in Spanish, right? Preach to me in Mandarin. 
preach to me in Korean. I can understand that a little bit. But just preach to me, because I'm here to worship God. I cannot fall asleep. And that was just, for me, one of the evidences. Everything began to change. And so we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even if you have been converted, you might not have been baptized. Your first experience of that fullness. And even if you have, you need to be filled again because we are leaky vessels. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, be continually filled in an ongoing way with the Holy Spirit. That is the literal Greek. Continuously in an ongoing way, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can talk more about that next week and the weeks ahead. So look at your journey. Look at your own walk with God. Can you remember a time when you were baptized with the Holy Spirit? Was there a time when you received that first great filling of the Spirit and then everything began to change? The Christian life fundamentally began to to be different for you. I want to encourage you, be filled, be baptized. So we need to come to a close. We're going to actually have to do the third point next week. But then how do you receive then? How do you receive this baptism and this filling of the Spirit? And we're going to close with this. But we just have to do what the disciples did in Acts chapter 1 and in our passage in Acts chapter 2. But our passage opens with what? The disciples were all together in one place praying. They were just simply asking. And I can't assume this, but I have to believe that when you're reading Acts chapter 2 verse 1 and they're all together praying, anticipating this pouring out of the Spirit, they might have been thinking about Jesus' words in Luke chapter 11. Because again, Luke wrote both books. And in Luke chapter 11, this is what God said, basically. This is what Jesus said. But he said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your If your child comes and says, give me a bread, are you going to give him a stone? No. If he says, give me a fish, are you going to give him a snake? He said, No. And if you know that, though being evil, then how much more will the Father, who is good, right, who is holy, give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? And so I have to believe that these disciples who are in the upper room, they're anticipating the Spirit coming upon them. They might have been thinking of these words in Luke chapter 11. And so I want to close with this encouragement But if you want to be baptized by the Spirit, if you've never had that filling of the Spirit to the full for the first time, or if you just want to be filled again, you've experienced it, but you want to be filled again, then acknowledge that you need the Holy Spirit. This is what Luke is driving at in this opening two chapters of Acts. But you need the Spirit, amen? Just acknowledge it. Number two, believe that Jesus promised to give it. This baptism, he will give it. Believe that he promised to give it. And the third, simply ask to receive it. Ask. And how do we ask? Well, going back to Luke 11, ask like a little child. The picture in that teaching is basically a father and a little child, and the little child just comes to him. But ask like that. So a little child would ask humbly. Little children have no guile. They have no duplicity. Their hearts are pure. Right? When they come and ask for something, they don't, they don't know who you are, right? They don't know, well, they know who you are, but they don't know like, what you do or like, how much money you have. They just ask, right? Give me a pony. Uh, uh, no, right? But it's like, just give me things. But they ask. Their hearts are pure. In the same way, we need to repent of being doubtful, double-minded, and just come with this innocent, pure heart and just simply ask. Ask humbly. Number two, ask trustingly. 
a child, when he comes to a parent, has all this trust. Whenever I ask, my parent isn't going to slap me. My parent isn't going to give me a, something else as a, as a joke or a trick. My parent's going to hear me. Okay, that's what a child is thinking. My parent is going to hear this request and probably give it. So they ask trustingly. And then number three, ask repeatedly. Ask repeatedly. Okay, how many guys have been around children? They like to repeat themselves. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Can I have it? 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 Just the other day, we were driving somewhere, and they kept asking the same question. I can't even remember. I was just annoyed. Right? But can I have it? Can I have it? Can I have it? But ask repeatedly. And then number four, lastly, ask with others. In that upper room, they were all together in one place praying. They're anticipating the coming of the Spirit. Amen? And so it's just simple. Okay, it's not some secret formula. You don't have to go to seminary. Just humble yourself. Trust the Lord and his promise. Know that the Father is eager. He's wanting to give and then just ask. Ask him, amen? And I believe he will give. So let's just come before the Lord right now. Let's just bow our heads. I know we covered a lot. But these things are so important. We need to be clear. More than anything else, as we leave this place, I pray that you're going to have that mindset. For some of you, it's going to be a radically shift a radically different mindset. But it's the mindset that says, you know what? I can't live this Christian life on my own anymore. And so that's my prayer, that you're gonna leave with that mindset. Anything I try to do on my own is gonna just be a parody. Our Christian life becomes a prop. It looks good, but it doesn't really work. But once you are filled with the Spirit, and for some of you, baptized with the Spirit, that first filling, then everything's gonna change. And so let's just come before the Lord. And, and so the only prayer topic today is just ask. You know, wherever you may be, just ask the Lord. And confess if you've tried to live the Christian life on your own. Even this year, we're going to have opportunities to be a witness. If you've tried to be a witness on your own, confess that. Let's just come before him right now. Thank you, Lord. We look to you, Lord. Jesus said, the spirit brings life, the flesh counts for nothing. And being in the flesh is not just doing sinful things out there. It could be 
doing things right here inside church. It could be reading your Bible. You could read the Bible in the flesh. Serving, even worshiping, right? Praising God up here. You can do it all in the flesh. Even preaching, teaching the word, you could do it in the flesh. So let's just come before the Lord. Let's confess that. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. Have you been living the Christian life in the flesh? Let's just come before the Lord. Thank you, Father. Father.